So Money Episode 737, Ask Farnoosh with special co-host Randy Levin. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. You're listening to So Money, everyone. June 1st, we made it. It is unofficially summer, officially June 21st, which is, by the way, also my son's fourth birthday. Uh, but it is nice to arrive at this month. June is one of my favorite months. And if you've been listening to the show this week, you've been in for a treat. We had Oddity Shaker on Monday, who is the founder of a new platform that is helping couples manage their money all together in one place, which is unbelievably rare. You know, it's kind of one, there's really nothing out there quite like it. There's Mint, which is great for individuals. And I suppose you could. Um, bring in different people's financial accounts onto Mint, like presumably you and your partner. But but Zeta, ZetaHelp.com is her company and they are intentionally programmed and designed for couples and all sorts of couples, couples who split their expenses, couples who have different siloed accounts, couples who do a little bit of both. And I'm an investor in the company. So it was really exciting to talk to her and catch up and learn about where they're headed. And if you want to get a, a at the top of the wait list to get onto the site, because it's still in its beta phase and they have a wait list, uh, make sure to listen to that episode or go to somoneypodcast.com, go into the show notes and get the link uh, so that you can get to the top of the wait list for, for Zeta. Very excited about that. And then we had Danielle Town on Wednesday, who has a new book out called Invested. And Danielle is the daughter of Phil Town, who is the author of Rule Number One, a very famous book about investing. And Phil is, if you know anything about investing or if you studied investing, you've probably come across his work. And Danielle, ironically, grew up with him as her dad and just hated investing, didn't want anything to do with it, was actually turned off by it. And we explored that a little bit. And unsurprisingly, it has a little bit to do with the tension she had with her dad growing up. And so an interview that I, I think she wasn't expecting us to kind of go there, Danielle, but we did. And it was really uh, revelatory. And uh, the book is great. And also she talks about the one stock she's investing in now. Interesting. I thought she would be investing in a lot of different things because she wrote a book about investing and she invests kind of as a as a big part of her work now, but she's got only one stock in her portfolio, which she understands she needs to diversify, but I was really eager to hear about that one stock. So make sure to tune into Danielle Town episode 736 to get that. Today, we are talking about student loans, real estate, leasing a car, which, you know, some of these questions are all seemingly technical, but really when people are asking financial questions, the underpinning is usually some sort of emotional 
question, right? Or an emotional state. And to help us get through these questions today, I've brought on a coach, uh, Randy Levin. She's the founder and CEO of Randy Levin Coaching, and she is a nationally recognized transitional life strategist, just like perhaps Tony Robbins, who was our first guest on So Money. She's a Fortune 500 keynote, an author, and a reinvention expert. Randy, welcome to So Money. Thank you, Farnoosh. It's fantastic to be here today. Thanks so much. Your turn to coaching was sort of a midlife reinvention. Tell us about how you arrived at this. Okay. Well, I was in corporate America for um, the better part of two decades and um, then stepped off of that into what I call my second chapter, which was stay-at-home mom. And I had decided that, you know, I had my kids. I thought I was going to go back to work, you know, right away. Then I said, okay, I'll take some time. And one kid became two kids and the rest of that story just kind of kept going. And so there was always this whisper, always this, this piece of me that said, what's next? What is that thing you're going to do? And I knew it was my own business. I just had to um, take those steps to really reinvent myself, to really step forward, because I knew that what I had been doing wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, and so I did do that. I was was uh, moving toward a big birthday and just said, OK, this is it. You're just doing it. And I really started to research uh, what was out there and ask myself one really pivotal question. What would I do? What would I do if it were 10 years ago? And the answer to that brought me forward into coaching. And it's all about legacy. My whole um, concept with with coaching and helping and supporting women is all about uh, being a legend in your own life and taking that concept of legacy into the current moment so that we're living it. And I'm curious, how often does money and money issues come up in your coaching practice as people are trying to you know, live in the moment? Every day all the time. Um, it comes up in every aspect too. So it comes up even in people deciding to hire a coach. Okay. So there's, there's all those issues that people come up with around money. Oh, I don't know if I have enough for that. Or, you know, I haven't saved for that. Or, you know, maybe tomorrow we will circle back to, um, so the idea of investing in yourself, uh, is foreign. To, to a lot of people. Um, and that's the, where all your investments really start. It's where you give yourself that power and that authenticity to step into what's next in your life. So it shows up there and then it shows up within the coaching. You know, they'll, they'll be stopping themselves short of something because they don't feel that they've got what they need monetarily. Um, and that's not always the case, as we well know. Um, it's kind of that vision we have for ourselves. So uh, what I like to do is really to work with people to really make their visions a reality and be able to manifest the things that, that they most want. So to not stop ourselves in that process. One of the things that you talk about in your practice is that in order to make successful withdrawals from the bank of life, you have to first be able to make deposits into the bank of self. I like that analogy because it, to me, it's, it, it, it reads like a financial <laughs> like parable, but um, you're absolutely right. And I love how you've shaped that. But you know, that's a real, that's a real life um, platitude, if you would, as, yeah. as well, because I think that, you know, we, we, we don't make that investment. You know, we want to pull out, we want to pull out, we want to have the savings, if you would, but we don't make the investment in. And so we rob ourselves sometimes because we step more into the fear than into the possibility. You have an offer for our audience, right? Helping us all get more balanced in our lives, which absolutely. I, I don't know how I feel about that word, to be honest. But I hate that word, <laughs> which is why I have this offer. Can we just be honest? 
<laughs> I will be honest. Um, you know, balance is one of those things that people ask for, want, you know, step into coaching certainly around, but I don't really think it's a real thing. So what I've done is I've come, come together with a, a challenge, a self-driven challenge, if you would. It's free. Um, it's available at Randy at randylevincoaching.com forward slash balance forward slash. Um, and it can be yours. And what it is, is a PDF that gives you a graphic uh, that I suggest you do every Sunday night. I like Sunday nights because we don't know what Sunday nights entail. I like that little calm before the storm, if you would, really sitting down with yourself and figuring out where you are in relationship to your life, because that's what balance is. By definition, balance is about relationship. It's about your relationship to yourself, about your relationship to the, to the world around you and about your relationship in the current moment. And what I ask you to do is just detail. There's like seven different areas of your life, what you're going to do, where the action's going to be, what steps you're going to take that week, um, in regard to balancing all these aspects of your life. And then I ask you to calendar it. So it becomes a reality for yourself. And then to look back the following week and to see where you may have fallen short and to repeat the process. And as we do that over 52 weeks of our life over the next year, you start to naturally balance out the different areas of your life. So it's helpful in all aspects. What's that expression? Like if you do a habit more than X many times, it just yeah. sticks. And so 52 yeah. weeks is a long time to be dedicated to any kind of practice. And if this is something that you listeners, if this is something that you really want to master in your life is this idea of balance. Uh, this is a great uh, way to do it. Thank you for offering that. We'll put that link on our site as well. Fabulous. All right. We have a lot of voicemails to listen to this week. You know, it's been a while since I've uh, received voicemails, I think because I've been really promoting Instagram. Randy, are you on Instagram? Yes, I am at Randy Levin Coach. All right. Okay. So we're going to start following you. We have a bunch of voicemails that were left on SpeakPipe, which if you would like to leave me a voicemail, you absolutely can, and we'll air it on the show. And the way you do it is you go to somoneypodcast.com, you click on Ask Farnoosh at the top right, and that will prompt you to either type in your question or leave a voicemail. And so this first question is from Haley. And she's calling us from Salt Lake City. She just graduated from college and she has some questions about her student loan debt. So I'm going to let Haley take the mic. Hi, Farnoosh. My name is Haley and I'm calling you from Salt Lake City, Utah. I just graduated college, which I'm really excited about. But like so many of us, I am leaving with a little bit of debt. I have 14014 in student loan debt. But my question is... I have $5,000 left over that was not used for tuition or living expenses that I have just sitting in my bank account ready to put back towards my loan. My question is, I'm in my grace period right now until about December. Can I go ahead and just throw that $5,000 onto the principal of my loan while I'm in my grace period or should I just wait until my payments start being due? Any advice on what I should do with this $5,000 that I never used for my student loans um, to pay it back towards the $14,000 would be very helpful. I hope that made some sense. Thank you so much for what you do, Farnoosh. All right. Haley, trying to get a head start on her student loans. I like where her head's at. That's nice, right? You don't always get the college student that's like, I have an extra $5,000 and I want to put it back into my student loans. I'd want to spend that if I were her probably, uh, if I had to remember myself back at 
21, 22 years old. But absolutely, Haley, you can put the money towards your student loans before the grace period is over. And I would recommend that. And if if that is something that you really want to do, it will help you a lot in terms of knocking down not just the balance, but also your interest bill on that loan. And why why not? I feel like the longer you have $5,000 sitting in your bank account, the longer you're going to probably do something wrong with it. <laughs> like, don't give yourself the opportunity. What do you think, Randy? I love that she's so proactive. I love that she's in the now and she's really thinking um, on her feet, so to speak, of you know how she can tackle these loans, what she has available to her, um, because that's an important skill for life. Yeah, and anytime you get a lump sum, whether like maybe she'll get a job and they'll give her a signing bonus or she'll get a raise or she'll get a tax refund because now you're going to be, you know, doing that as you are an employee somewhere, then I think that's always a great opportunity to take some of that or all of that chunk of money and put it towards your debt and just get it out of the picture off the off the balance sheet sooner than later. Uh, you know, $14,000 in the grand scheme of student loan debt, in the, in the grand scheme of all the sizes of debts I've, I've heard about and come across, it's minuscule. You know, the average student loan debt with people graduating from college these days is closer to $40,000. Um, and of course, we've heard about the, the really scary like $250,000 student loan tab. So $14,000 I think is, is really easy easier to get rid of than some other uh, some other balances. And if you've got that $5,000, which by the way, was meant to be part of your student loan and she didn't use it. So you know, rightfully, it should go back to the debt. And I think sooner than later would be great because you'll be able to uh, you know, really reduce your balance and the interest owed. Um, and uh, that will help you a lot in life, just getting giving you a head start. And so Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. As somebody who, who had that debt myself and married even more debt um, for student loans, I can tell you it, it does um, give pause for thought because it, it does take you much longer to get to where you want to financially when you're paying that back. So whenever you can, jump on it. Great. All right. So Haley, good luck to you. Thanks for leaving a voicemail. Another question here left on SpeakPipe. It's an anonymous person, anonymous listener, and it's about prioritizing their money. And so I'll have her ask the question and we'll try to tackle it. Here we go. Hey, Farnoosh. My partner and I have an awesome five-year-old and we both work for nonprofits and live in the San Francisco Bay Area. Now that our son is finally old enough to be in public school, we have some money for saving again and we're trying to prioritize it. Uh, a few things we're thinking about are we know we need to save more for retirement. We want to save money for a down payment on a home. We're currently renters. We'd love to save some money for our son's uh, education. And we also still have some college loans that are low interest loans. So we're wondering where do we start? How do we prioritize that? And I'm also wondering what's the best strategy for saving for a down payment? Currently, we're saving just in a savings account, but should we be investing this money in an index fund or somewhere else on a monthly basis? Thanks for any advice you might have. Well, I love that she calls her five-year-old awesome. 
I love that she started the question that way. And I'm sure he's awesome. And it's so awesome too that, yeah, now he's in school and he is allowing – and that is allowing you to have more money to invest or save or do whatever you want to do. And that's kind of the question. What does she do with now the fact that they have more money to go around? And so there's a lot of things they're contemplating. It's catching up on their retirement savings, a down payment on a home, their son's education, college, and they also have some student loan debt, speaking of. So where do they start? There's not really like a wrong answer, although I will say that I wouldn't necessarily start with putting money towards your son's college education. I think that if you are behind on your retirement, if you have some debt, then I think those would take priority because, you know, it's most important that you can take care of yourself in retirement. Retirement is a very long stretch of time. College is four years and your son will probably be able to afford some of it on his own, get some scholarships, go somewhere affordable. There's a lot of ways to navigate college costs in a way that's flexible. And if you plan ahead, it it can be done. But retirement Really, it's a long haul and the only way to arrive with enough money is to start saving as early and as often as possible. So if you do feel behind on that, I would say that would be one of the first things I would do. Second is I would look very closely now at those college loans. She says they're low interest, but if that is something that is keeping you up at night and Randy, you can chime in here. Like some mm. of this is probably has to do with like <laughs> what your emotions are are telling you, right? Like if their debt is really stressing them out, if the fact that they aren't saving enough for retirement is stressing them out, then I think that's also valid and they should listen to that feeling and do and, and act accordingly. I was just going to say, you should listen to your life. And, and I like the idea that they've put lots of options on the table. So it's not an either or, but it could be an and. So there could be one or more things that they're doing or repurposing this money for. Um, and listen to your life. Listen to, you know, where you feel that you're somehow um, not doing some of the things that you want to do or to your point, what's keeping you up at night or maybe standing in the way of something that you really, really want. So come together on that so that you, you're, you know, both speaking the same language make sure that, you know, both spouses, you know, are in agreement, you know, is it, is it time to purchase that home? You know, what, what are the fundamentals for this that, that are most important to you now? I agree. I mean, if you feel like you don't have enough for retirement, then I don't know if you want to put all the eggs in the home down payment basket. You might want to put some of that money to work in your 401k or IRAs a little bit other in maybe extra few payments on your principal for the loan. And then she did ask also, what is the best strategy for saving for a down payment? And for that, I would say, you know, I actually just moved some money over into a CD for a a one-year CD, which I'll probably roll into another year depending on my real estate plans. But I do want to also, my husband and I want to buy something in the next like five, six, seven years. And we know that that's going to require a lot of diligent savings. And so rather than have that sit in a checking account earning zero, we do have it in a CD. We wouldn't put that in the stock market necessarily, like risk it in stocks because we feel like there could be a major correction in the next year or two or three. And by the time we want to buy, it won't have um, sort of corrected itself. It won't. We won't have uh, benefited from the time to make up for those losses. So general rule of thumb is any money that you definitely need, that you foresee needing 
foreseen needing, excuse me, in the next five years, I wouldn't put that in the stock market. I wouldn't put it in an index fund. I wouldn't put it in an ETF. I would put it in something a little bit more liquid and quote unquote safe, guaranteed. And it could just be a checking account or I, you know, because I know that I won't need this money for myself in the next year, I'm fine with a CD. And you can always take it out. It's not like you're locked in, but the goal is that you keep it in that CD's term so that you can benefit from the interest rate. Um, so that is what I would say to that question. And I, I, again, really appreciate that they are thinking along these lines that um, mm. I'm really excited for them, you know, that they yeah. have now options and options and possibilities and are, are, you know, really looking at all of that. So yeah. it's very well, speaking of transitions in life, um, Jared has left also a voicemail on SpeakPipe, and it's about wedding planning and the costs associated with that. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we'll have a lot to offer him. Okay, Jared, <laughs> take it away, Jared. Hey, Farnoosh. My name is Jared, and my fiance Jamie, and I are getting married in one year. We've already started saving for about six months, and we save over $800 a month to- together on our own. We've come up with a budget of $45,000 to spend on our wedding, and that's in part with our own contributions, as well as her family and my family. The problem is, in getting our proposals and estimates, we've already surpassed our budget. We're trying to figure out ways, other than cutting down on our guest list, that would be creative ways we can come up with and get back into our budget. We're very determined to not have any debt after this wedding. Thanks so much. All right. $45,000 is really an impressive amount of money that they've pooled between themselves and I guess their families. And they've been, I know Jared said he and his fiance have been saving every month, six to $800. That's really great. Unfortunately, it's still not enough to cover kind of the ideal wedding that they have. And he didn't really give us a lot of details as far as what is the dream wedding? What kinds of vendors have they been approaching? And I don't know how big this party is. And he definitely doesn't want to cut down on the list of the guests. So I get that. But I think, you know, there are a lot of ways to save on your wedding. And $45,000 is about the average that is spent on a wedding in the US. It's actually a little bit higher than average, but depending on where he is, um, if he's in New York City or in San Francisco or in a big city like then it can definitely be much higher. And gosh, I mean, sky's the limit these days for spending on weddings. $45,000 is like how much a woman spent on say yes for the dress, for her dress the other day on that show, which is ridiculous. But I think some ways to save, and you can chime in, Randy, is like thinking about the timing of your wedding. You know, summer seasons are the most popular. And so that means that vendors are very busy and they're not going to cut you deals because they've got the business. They have businesses humming in June, July, August, September. And so October's if you want- a hot, October's a hot wedding month now October, too. yeah. But you know, December, January, yeah. February, March, these aren't the most popular times of year to get married, especially in the East Coast because it's cold and people want to get married when it's nice and lovely outside. So- if you're willing to make a concession there, I think you could save a lot of money. I think also the location is going to be a big determining factor of how much you're going to spend. So if you have time, I would really explore alternative sites and talk to friends and family and friends of friends and see, does anyone have like a really cool house or 
some sort of relationship to a venue where you could get a discount or you could get some sort of deal. A girlfriend of mine got married at her at a relative's um, lake house. So they saved on the location fee, still had to pay for catering and all that stuff. But the location sometimes can be a big budget eater. And then, of course, the day of the week, you know, Saturday is always the most popular day of the week to get married. But if you could go for a Friday wedding or even a Sunday wedding, I'm sure, again, vendors will be able to cut deals with you. It's really about putting yourself in the shoes of vendors, too, and thinking like, what would make them want to give me a deal? Right, right. Think out of the box. Yeah. I want to just congratulate them, first Yay, of all. Yay, yes. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> on, on what's going on there and, and the incredible tenacity you have towards saving for this. But I do want to just pipe in with a reminder, as somebody who's been married for literally three decades, that this is a party. Yeah. It's a party. It's a celebration. And it's an important party and an important celebration. But it's a party and celebration of, of a union that you're making it hopefully will last a lifetime. And that's your focus. So how do you celebrate yourselves? Not breaking the bank, not getting into debt, you know, using any technique you can to have something that's a little bit different, um, maybe less traditional um, in, in aspect. So whether that is a different day of the week or a different type of venue or a day versus a night, it's a party. And the most important piece is what happens after. Thank you for reminding us of that. I have a saying, it goes like this, you're getting married, not weddinged. So just remember that. And I know there's a lot of pressure around weddings. There's a lot of family involvement and judgment and participation, and that can get very complicated very quickly. And I think it's just really important that you and your fiance get clear on what are your non-negotiables, but also what are you okay to be flexible on? And this is your day. You know, it's not... As much as you want it to be something that everybody can feel good about and wants to, I mean, like like Randy said, it's one day and it does go by so fast. Of your life that you're planning for how long, saving for how long for. When you think about the scope of of the life you're going to spend together, it's minuscule, even though it's huge in in relationship to, you know, the world we live in. Everyone wants to talk about their, their wedding or thinks about it. You know, little girls grow up thinking about their wedding. I can tell you, I made my own wedding. Um, was it my dream wedding? No. Uh, was it a hybrid of that? Yes. But I definitely had a budget and, you know, there, there was no getting around that. Um, and it, it did make it a little more difficult, but we had to, you know, had to be creative. You know, we got married on a Sunday evening instead of a Saturday evening. Um, we did pair back a guest list. Uh, so the, the, you know, there's things that you do. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, talk about your needs with, you know, whoever you're negotiating with. So, you know, really lay into, okay, what can I do that's different? Or where do you have availability for this? Or where don't you have bookings for that? So, you know, whatever type of music you're getting, whatever type of, you know, giveaways that you're doing, your photographer, all of it, you know, where can you make that best investment? Great advice. All right. Those were our voicemails. And now we have a couple questions that were left on Instagram. Everybody knows they can now reach me there. I'm very active on Instagram at Farnoosh Tarabi. We have a question from M on Instagram. And she says that she and her husband have two rentals and one main residence in which they live. 
They're in the process of currently selling the residence and the plan is to buy a new place to live in. She says, I want to know if it's a good idea to sell one of the rentals to get more money for the new home purchase. Uh, She says they'll likely get about $40,000 from selling their home. They want to buy a new home in the three hundred and fifty to four hundred thousand price range. So if that's all they have, forty thousand dollars, that's about a ten percent down payment, which worries me. Anyway, more to the question. She says we currently owe seventy thousand dollars on each of the rentals. The rentals are profitable. They make them about four hundred dollars a month each. But uh, she says, if we do sell one of the rentals, then we're going to get back about $85,000. So that plus the $40,000 from the sale of their main residence, now we're talking about you know closer to like a 25, 30% down payment. And that's where I'm most comfortable. Like I live in New York City. You can't even get a house unless you have 20% at least. It's very competitive here, but I think that's that makes for a healthier market in the sense that no one is really over leveraged. Uh, it's really important that you have skin in the game when you buy a home. The market could go up, it could go down. You don't want to ever be underwater. And if you ever had to sell the home quickly, unexpectedly, you want to make sure that you do have equity. And 10% really worries me. I'm just still reeling from the housing crisis. And I just feel like I know that in some cases you can definitely buy a house with 10% down or less, but it worries me. And so for me, from me being the risk, risk averse person when it comes to Real, I mean, I love real estate. It's no secret, but I also am very careful about how I go about it. So 20 to 25% would be a better place to be in. And the good news is, is that if you sell the rental and then you also sell your primary residence combined, that's more than a 20% down payment. So you would have some money left over. And she brings up this other question, which is, I've got these student loans, $90,000. And, uh, you know, maybe that's some that's an area of focus that I should take the sale the proceeds from selling one of the rental properties and just paying off that student loan and you know it's really at this point um, a question of what your priorities are what are the interest rates on those student loans probably not significant if unless they're crazy private loans which doesn't sound like they are but I think you will have money left over from selling a rental and selling your primary residence to knock down some of that student loan as well. So I think you could do a little bit of both here. And I think selling a rental may not be a bad idea just because also it's going to be less of, uh, it's going to be less to, to manage and, I mean, it sounds like they're trying to build a real estate empire, frankly. (laughs) It doesn't mean you can't then go back in a few years and repurchase a rental. But I think that if you do want to kind of upgrade your your current living standards and buy a bigger home or a more expensive home, then you want to be able to afford it comfortably so that all the other financial chips can fall into place. Does that make sense? Makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, I think you know your relationship to money is is reflected in in your relationship to the things you're doing in your life, and it does sound like they have a lot going on um, in terms of real estate, and there's still debt. You know, so she mentions or they mentioned selling one property. What are your thoughts on them selling both and, and taking the proceeds from the second one to pay off the student loans? 
Hmm. I mean, I don't know. I I mean, ninety thousand dollars in student loans is a lot. It's a lot more than the fourteen thousand we heard about earlier in the show. I think that there is a way to still keep both. I think, look, if they're making $400 a month from one of the rentals, what if you took that and you applied it to the principal of that student loan every month, um, yeah. an additional principal payment? So you're paying essentially an extra five grand a month, uh, sorry, a year. And, you know, that can go a very long way. So they're able to keep this rental, you know, have this property that hopefully is appreciating, but using it as a vehicle to help pay off the student loans faster. I think that's not a bad solution in, in, in the interim. And then hopefully this property, this rental continues to appreciate. Maybe they can increase the rent over the years. And all the while that student loan is getting knocked down more and more and more. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I kind of like the idea that they're building wealth through real estate and it's working for them. Mm-hmm. And I know how hard it is sometimes to find a property that in the end, after all the expenses and overhead that you do eke out a profit every month as a rental. So if they've found that and it's working for them, keep at it. I would. I love real estate. I know they've got these loans, but try to put as much of extra money they can towards the student loans to knock that uh, completely out of the picture sooner than later. All right. Ron on Instagram. Um, this is a great question. We don't really talk about it enough on the show. Maybe it's because I live in New York and I don't I mean, I own a car, but it's not something that I I know a ton about. But he says, do you think leasing a car ever makes financial sense? His wife drives just seven to 8,000 miles per year. A car is a depreciating asset. Randy, do you have a car? I do. We we have several, actually. Oh, really? They're all leased. Oh, so tell me everything about your situation. Because I didn't know this. This is perfect. I picked this question randomly. So, yes, they're all leased. And and I'm of the, of the thought process, financially, probably not the best, but, but you could tell us more about that. But the reason that we like leases is because it allows you to change. It allows you to, you know, have something that is current and something that best suits you in the moment, if you would. And so, you know, if you were to be a young family, let's say you may want to get that SUV or get that minivan. Whereas, you know, if you held on to that for a number of years, yes, you do have something to sell or trade in, but your needs are going to change. Um, and very quickly sometimes where you may want that sedan, you may, may want something a little sportier. So I don't know for us, we we kind of like the idea of being able to change out and, and change it up a little bit. Yeah, that's definitely a good, um, a good qualifier for for leasing. I think if you are somebody who who likes to have a new car, you know, every few years, then leasing can definitely be a way to accomplish that. And these days, there are many dealerships that are offering really attractive leasing options. Um, so if that's you, then I think then maybe it makes sense. In in Ron's case, though, he's really concerned about how little they drive, and so you know, this isn't like a huge, like a car isn't a huge priority for them, but it is something that they would like to have access to when they do need to drive the miles. And so, yeah, I think, you know, if you can find a really low cost, affordable lease, um, a safe-ish car and, you know, one that's going to get you from point A to point B and there's not a lot of need to, rep- you know, it sounds like you're not going to need to, the car's not going to get a lot of wear and tear, which is good because leases, 
you don't want to do that. They, right. they want, you want and to be able to turn it in looking attract, pretty. Low mileage is attractive. And you can also really negotiate any kind of down payments and stuff. Just because you see it in print doesn't mean that that's what it is, especially if your mileage is low. So there's usually some, some latitude there to, um, negotiate for yourself. Yeah. So I, I, there's a couple of resources I would recommend, Ron, to check out. Um, one is edmunds.com, E-D-M-U-N-D-S. They have a lot of content around this topic and all sorts of car auto topics, but they also have a calculator that where you can compare leasing versus buying. So if you know the model and the make and the price of the car that you're interested in buying and then the, the car that you're interested in leasing, you can do a nice, easy comparison, financial comparison to see like what actually makes sense for you. And so you'll get a more specific answer than the one I'm giving you. Also, moneyunder30.com has a great uh, article called When Does It Make Sense to Lease a Car? And they go through it. In general, I think most financial experts and financial planners would say buying is better in the long run. You'll save more money if you buy a quality car with the plan to drive it into the ground, you know, rack up 100,000 plus miles on it that unless it's like a lemon, you know, <laughs> it should probably work out more financially advantageous to you. But then again, it does it, is it really aligning with your goals? Does it align with your car habits, et cetera? So there's, there are exceptions to every rule. And so I would recommend checking out those two sites to hone in on your exact plan. But thank you for the question. And that was left on Instagram. Randy, thank you again for, you know, giving us a little bit more dimension in these in these answers. I love having coaches on because they come to this to the money stuff with such open-mindedness, clarity, reminding us of kind of also the importance of tapping into who we are, what our goals are. It's not always just about numbers and dollars and cents and spreadsheets. It's really about what you're trying to accomplish from the inside, not just the outside. Exactly. Thank you so much, Vanish. Thank you. And we'll be sure to put Randy's information on our site. But just again, uh, to, to mention the free PDF that she's got, the 52-week self-guided challenge around balance, go to randylevincoaching.com forward slash balance forward slash. And everybody, hope your weekend is so money. Money.